0: Hello, and welcome to A History of Jazz, a podcast dedicated to exploring jazz history one record at a time. I'm your host, Arik Devins. Before we start this week, we need to do a little bit of follow-up. As listener Andy Larson pointed out on Twitter, when discussing the nature of improvisation in jazz last episode, I incorrectly said timbre in reference to the specific quality of a musician's tone when I meant to say timbre. My apologies. So, Last time, we covered a ton of history in very broad detail so that we could get to the original Dixieland Jazz Band and the first jazz recording. This time, we're going to take a closer look at the origins of that band, as well as the rest of the music they recorded in 1917. After the massive success of their first record, they went back to the studio at least five more times that year. So we'll intersperse our story this time with the other songs that they recorded that year. Before we start, though, I do need to make one note. A lot of our information this time comes from one book, the story of the original Dixieland jazz band, which is their primary biography. Most of that book's information comes from the band's leader, Nick LaRocca. Unfortunately, Nick LaRocca was both a famously unreliable narrator as well as an unrepentant bigot. He spent most of his post-jazz career evangelizing for his band's place in history and incorrectly saying that they invented jazz. In addition, he repeatedly claimed that African-American musicians had had nothing to do with it. The original Dixieland jazz band did not invent jazz. That is a bunch of racist garbage. But they were the first to make a record, so for the purposes of our history, it's useful to learn a little bit more about them, which we'll do this time. We're going to start the episode out with the other song from that record-setting album that we closed last week with, and that's called Dixie Jazz Band One Step, and here it is. Enjoy. Thank So who were the original Dixieland jazz band? Who were the members? Well, the primary group was made up of five musicians. Cornetist and leader Nick LaRocca, who I've already mentioned, trombonist Eddie Edwards, pianist Harry Ragas, drummer Tony Sabarbaro, and clarinetist Larry Shields. And throughout the course of this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about each one of them. We're going to start, naturally, with the leader, Nick LaRocca. So everyone in the band grew up in New Orleans, but Nick's father was an immigrant from Italy. He was actually also a cornet player, but unlike his son, he was not a professional musician, and in fact viewed professional musicians very negatively, and did not want his any of his children to grow up to be musicians. In fact, he had decided when his son was born that he was going to be a doctor. Unfortunately for the elder Loraca, Nick seems to have only ever been interested in playing music, first by making his own homemade instruments, and then by stealing his father's cornet and attempting to teach himself how to play. Eventually, when he thought that he was good enough, he played a a mini concert for his father. When he finished, he expected his dad to be happy, applause, whatever, but in fact his dad grabbed the cornet, grabbed his axe, and destroyed the cornet, reducing it to bare metal. His father actually never played again because he felt like he had already been enough of a negative influence on his son. If he thought that that would dissuade his son, though, he was sorely mistaken. Nick spent his summer vacation working various odd jobs and saved up enough money to buy another used cornet. This time he tried to be a little more clever with it. He would hide it at night by tying a string to it and lowering it down a well. Unfortunately for him, though, one day he was late for school and forgot to bring the cornet with him. And when he got home, he discovered his father had found it and also destroyed this one with his axe. At this point, his father said to him, "I told you before, son, I don't want you to be a musician. They play for eats and drink. They wander around the country, they get drunk, they're always penniless. Forget about music, my boy. Study to be a doctor. And I have to say, I get where his dad was coming from, but if I got that speech, I'd be like, "That sounds awesome. I'm totally doing that. Uh, doctor seems really, really hard." Anyway, his father died when he was about 15, and his mother, while also not super excited about the idea of him being a musician, was far more lenient about his practicing at home. At this time in New Orleans, being a full-time musician wasn't really a, a career you could follow, though. The money wasn't good enough, so he worked a variety of daytime jobs as like a contractor, a construction worker, things like that. But he did start playing more and more shows, and eventually he ended up in the Papa Jack Lane Reliance Brass Bands that we talked about last time. And through that, eventually, he met our next subject, Eddie Edwards. Before we talk about Eddie, though, we're going to hear another song that the band made in 1917. So this song comes from another album they made, and this time it was not with Victor, but with Columbia. And they actually recorded this album before the one that was released to make to be the first jazz record. We'll talk more about how that all went down near the end of our episode, but effectively, it wasn't released until they were already well-known because of their Victor album. And for this album, they weren't playing their own original compositions. They were playing popular songs in a sort of jazz style that they'd been given by the recording company. So, this song at the Darktown Strutters Ball was not their composition, but it did sell extremely well when it came out, over a million copies and the sheet music sold over 3 million copies. So, here now from 1917 is At the Darktown Strutters Ball. <laughs> So that song has become a jazz standard, which is a term we use to refer to any song that is recorded over and over again and forms the basis for other compositions, so you will be hearing that chord progression many, many more times. The next member of the band I want to talk about is Eddie Edwards, the trombonist. So he was originally a violin player, and he actually took violin lessons starting when he was about 10, but when he was about 15 he was walking down the street and he found a wallet containing almost $50, which at that time was a huge sum of money. There was a card in the wallet that said the owner's name and address, and he returned the wallet. And he got out of it a $10 reward, which he used to order a trombone from the Montgomery Ward mail order catalog. And he taught himself how to play the trombone. So he received classical training in the violin, but was self-taught in the trombone. But because he received classical training in the violin, he could read music. Now, it's important to note that musicians in New Orleans at this era fell into three rough categories. There were what they called the papermen, who could read music but couldn't play by ear. There were the fakers, who couldn't read music at all but could play by ear. And then there was sort of a mixed category called the educated fakers, who could both read music and play by ear. Edwards was one of these educated fakers, who could read music and play by ear. But Nick LaRocca was a pure faker who never in his life could read music at all. Okay, so let's hear another song, and this song is also from that Columbia record that the last song was from, so it's another popular song. It was heavily influenced, in fact, by the state song of Indiana called On the Banks of the Wabash Far Away, which was published in 1913, and therefore this song is called Indiana. And in fact, it's even been used as part of the Indianapolis 500 pre-race ceremonies ever since 1946. So with all that in mind, let's hear Indiana. third member of the band I want to talk about is pianist Henry Ragos, and he's the member that I know the least about. In fact, you can't even really hear most of what he's playing on their recordings because the technology of 1917 found it very, very hard to capture the piano. His role in the band was mainly to fill out the chords and provide a bass line. He never played any solos, so he's never really featured on any of their records. He did, however, compose quite a few of their songs, and in fact, in 2006, his composition of Darktown Strutters' Ball, which we heard earlier, was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Okay, so in early 1916, a promoter from Chicago named Harry James asked clarinetist Alcide Nunez and drummer Johnny Stein about bringing a New Orleans-style band to the Schiller Cafe in Chicago. And he did this because Tom Brown's band from Dixieland, who were also from New Orleans, had been in Chicago for a while and were highly successful. They assembled Eddie Edwards, Henry Ragas, And originally, they hired a cornetist named Frank Christian, about whom we will learn a lot more in future episodes. But he backed out at the last minute because he already had steady work in New Orleans and was worried about the risk of going to Chicago. So, needing someone to fill the seat before they left for the gig, they hired Nick LaRocca. They called themselves Stein's Dixie Jazz Band, because at this point, the leader was drummer Johnny Stein, and they headed north to Chicago. Right around this time, the Anti-Saloon League a pro-prohibition effort, sent 60 women on a tour of Southside cafes to investigate supposed immoral and illegal behavior. They ended up at Schiller's Cafe while Stein's Dixie Jazz Band were playing, and because their results were eventually published in the newspaper, we have this quote about what their show was like. A line of taxicabs radiated from the Schiller to the east, west, north, and south. In front of the doors, a crowd of people fought for admission. A perspiring doorman held them back. Can't come in, he shouted. We're crowded to capacity. Wait till some of the others come out. This was 2.30 in the morning. The crowd in front of the doors kept increasing all the time, and the doorman had his hands full, keeping the mob from rushing him off his feet. No policeman was in sight. The party finally obtained admittance and a table after much elbowing and shoving. It was impossible for anyone to be heard. The shriek of women's drunken laughter rivaled the blatant scream of the imported New Orleans jazz band, which never seemed to stop playing. Men and women sat, arms about each other, singing, shouting, making the night hideous, while their unfortunate brethren and sisters fought in vain to join them. The party ordered gin fizzes, cocktails, and beer. They were served in a jiffy." Which, again, sounds awesome. I really want to go to that show. I'm not sure why they thought this was a bad thing, but they did. So, the band was clearly very successful, as the account says you couldn't even get in at 2.30 in the morning, but they were not very well paid. And they were unable to secure a raise from the $25 a week they were earning and were finding it more and more difficult to live off that. So most of the band, LaRocca, Edwards, Nunez, and Ragas, decided it was time to move on. But Johnny Stein, he was the only one under actual contract, and he didn't want to take the chance of breaking it. Eventually, their disagreement came to physical blows when Eddie Edwards punched Stein in the nose. And in May of 1916, the rest of the band left Stein, and that's when they formed the original Dixieland Jazz Band. Eventually, they sent back to New Orleans for drummer Tony Sabarbaro. And around the same time, tensions in the band between La Roca and Alcide Nunez begin to flare up. And they traded Nunez to Tom Brown's band for Larry Shields. And at that point, the lineup that recorded the 1917 records was finally complete. So let's hear another song from that 1917 group. This is called Ostrich Walk, and we'll be hearing it again later when we get to Big Spiderbeck, someone we will spend quite a lot of time with. So here now, Ostrich Walk. So as I mentioned, we now have two new members of the band, and the first is drummer Tony Sabarbaro, who was also the youngest member of the band. He was only 18 when he came up from New Orleans. He was apparently the first drummer to use cowbells. He also used a kazoo, and he kept a bunch of dolls and teddy bears around his drum kit when he would play. His drumming was referred to by his contemporaries as Galloping Style, which apparently had something to do with him using several cowbells, as I mentioned, as well as a large, large woodblock which he would use during choruses instead of a snare drum. It's probably important at this point to mention that a chorus in jazz is one full cycle of the song's chords, and it's the main way we organize jazz songs conceptually. The final member of the band was clarinetist Larry Shields, and he was entirely self-taught, like Nick LaRocca, he couldn't read music. He was also apparently born on the very same block that Buddy Bolden lived on. He started playing when he was 14, and he also played with Papa Jack Lane's bands, but he went to Chicago before the rest of the group did in 1915, and eventually ended up in Tom Brown's band, where they found him. He was later the idol of Benny Goodman, about whom we will learn a ton more when we get to the swing era. Okay, so let's play another one of those 1917 songs, and this one's called Tiger Rag, and it's one of the most popular early jazz standards. It's officially... Recognized as a composition of the original Dixieland jazz band, but many other musicians have claimed ownership And it was probably an old standard from New Orleans that existed long before this recording was made It fell off in popularity during the swing era, but it's been used in a ton of movie scores Most recently uh, including memoirs of a geisha And it's also still used as a fight song for kind of a lot of universities including LSU (laughs) After the famous singer Al Jolson heard the band in Chicago, he pushed a theatrical agent in New York he knew, Max Hart, to go and hear them as well. After Max Hart heard them, he signed them immediately for a two-week tryout at Risenweber's restaurant in New York, with a guaranteed contract of $750 per week if things went well. Quite a come-up from the $25 they were earning in Chicago. The January 15th issue of the New York Times featured an ad for the band, and it read, Margaret Hawksworth's Paradise, the smartest, most beautiful, and most modern ballroom in America, in the Ryzen Weber building at 8th Avenue and 58th Street, announces the first sensational amusement novelty of 1917, the Jazz, spelled J A S Z band, direct from its amazing success in Chicago, where it has given modern dancing new life and a new thrill. The Jazz Band is the latest craze that is sweeping the nation like a musical thunderstorm. The jazz band comes exclusively to Paradise, first of all in New York ballrooms, and will open for a run tonight, Monday. You've just got to dance when you hear it. So the initial trial run was to play two numbers each night while the regular orchestra was resting, and the response at first was somewhat underwhelming. Most of the spectators avoided the dance floor when they were playing, apparently regarding them as some sort of publicity scheme, but slowly, night after night, they began to build an audience. By February, they changed the spelling of their name from jazz band, J-A-S-S, to jazz band, J-A-Z-Z, and Nick LaRocca said this was because people could not resist the temptation to remove the letter J from their posters. Eventually, they won the city over, and this effect was summed up in a newspaper article published at the end of 1917 while they were still at Reisenweber's. This was in the Sunday, November 4th edition of the New York Sun. The young man with a face that seems to have grown florid from blowing his coronet to the point of apoplexy looks around at his handful of fellow players commandingly and begins thumping earnestly with his fashionable shod foot, and instantly the whole pack is in full cry. The musical riot that breaks forth from the horns and variants of tin pan instruments resembles nothing so much as a chorus of hunting hounds on the scent, with an occasional explosion in the subway thrown in for good measure. So let's hear another one of those choruses of hunting hounds on the scent and explosions in the subway with At the Jazz Band Ball, which also became a jazz standard. Within weeks of their arrival at Weber's, the fuss created caught the attention of the British-owned Columbia Gramophone Company, and the band was invited to record at the Woolworth Studios. But, when they did that first recording in January, their loud playing style completely overwhelmed the abilities of the studio's equipment. Columbia, who had no idea what they were getting into, paid them and sent them on their way, only to re- release that record, as I said earlier, after the Victor record came out. But The band immediately went to Victor and said, oh, you know, maybe you're interested. And the executives there were determined to succeed where Columbia had failed. Nick LaRocca has a good quote about what recording was like back then. First we made a test record, and then they played it back for us. This is when they started moving us around in different positions. After the first test record, four men were rushed in with ladders and started stringing wires near the ceiling. I asked them what all these wires were for, and one of the men told me it was to sop up the overtone that was coming back into the pickup horn. The recording engineer at Victor had the patience of a saint. He played back our music until it sounded right. Apparently, the final positioning for their recording had Laraca about 20 feet away from the pickup horn, with Sabarbaro, the drummer, five feet behind him, and they didn't even use the bass drum because it would overwhelm the recording. Eddie Edwards was about 12 to 15 feet from the horn, and Larry Shields was five feet away, with the pianist the closest. It is important to remember, though, that these distances were not about the relative volume level of the instruments. It had to do with the sensitivity of the recording apparatus, and it changed dramatically from one tonal range to another, so certain instruments could be more easily picked up than others. All the band members played at roughly the same volume level, at least the LaRocca, Edwards, and Shields did, but the instrument needed them to be in a different place in order to pick them up correctly. When that first record came out, it came out with a special issue of the Victor Record Review, which read... A jazz band is a jazz band, and not a victor organization gone crazy. Spell it jazz, 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 or jazz. Nothing can spoil a jazz band. Some say the jazz band originated in Chicago. Chicago says it comes from San Francisco, San Francisco being a way off across the continent. Anyway, a jazz band is the newest thing in cabarets, adding greatly to the hilarity thereof. Since then, the jazz band has grown in size and ferocity, and only with the greatest effort were we able to make the original Dixieland jazz band stand still long enough to make a record. That's the difficulty with a jazz band. You never know what it's gonna do next, but you can always tell what those who hear it are gonna do, they're gonna shake a leg. So let's shake a leg together at look at him doing it now. album was initially released it actually triggered two lawsuits one for each track of the record the first one we'll look at is what happened with livery stable blues so the victor talking machine company did not like the title livery stable blues and thought it was vulgar for reasons that i don't actually completely understand and they suggested the title barnyard blues instead and that's the name that they copyrighted But someone screwed up somewhere in production, and the record was labeled and issued with the title, Livery Stable Blues, which meant that it was instantly in the public domain. Eventually, Alcide Nunez, that former clarinetist from Stein's Dixie Jazz Band, published his own sheet music and listed himself as one of the composers. The original Dixieland Jazz Band was not super happy about this. Eventually, the dispute went to trial, but in the meantime, they did release Barnyard Blues as sheet music, but it didn't sell well because the public didn't recognize the name. So, the original Dixieland Jazz Band sued Victor for their mistake for $10,000. And at the same time, the band made a lot of the recordings we've heard in this episode, but for Aeolian vocalion another record label. Eventually, the case was settled out of court for about $2,500, but the band also agreed to return exclusively to recording for Victor. The original case, however, between Nunez and the band, continued, but it was pretty much never going to end well, The musicians couldn't explain what they had composed because they couldn't read music. The music authorities the court brought in couldn't understand the musicians, and the judge in the case seems to have found the entire thing mostly annoying. Nunez based his defense on a pretty interesting premise, though. His theory was that all blues, because they had the same chord progression, were basically the same, and therefore plagiarism would be impossible. He also argued that Barnyard Blues was copied from an older tune called More Power Blues. Eventually, the judge rendered his final verdict, and he said, The finding of the court is, therefore, that neither Mr. Laraca and his associates, nor Mr. Nunez and his associates, conceived the idea of this melody. They were a strolling band of players, and with no technical musical education, having a natural musical ear, quick ear, and above all a retentive ear, and no human being could determine where that aria came from that they now claim was produced at the Schiller Cafe for the first time. The finding of the court will be that neither the plaintiff nor the defendant is entitled to a copyright, and the bill and the answer will both be dismissed for want of equity. As soon as that one was settled, though, we get to the other lawsuit I mentioned, which was for the track on the other side, Dixie Jazz Band One Step, which was claimed to be too similar to a song called That Teas and Rag from 1909. This one was somewhat less dramatic. Victor solved it by pulling all unsold copies and reissuing them with new labels that included the phrase, introducing that tease and rag. So if you ever find a copy of this record without that mention on it, you know you found a really, really, really early one. Okay, let's hear one last song from the band from 1917. It's called Oriental Jazz, although it's also known as Sudan. That's the original Dixieland Jazz Band and what they were up to in 1917. Next episode, we will look at the effects the jazz craze had on the rest of the music industry, and we'll finish up our look at 1917. And you can expect that episode in two weeks. All right, thanks for listening. You can follow along with the show on Twitter at Jazz History Pod, or check out the website at ahistoryofjazz.com. Every episode, I'll be including a link to a Spotify playlist of all the songs we heard. You can subscribe in iTunes or Overcast or wherever great podcasts can be found. If you want to participate, please leave a rating or a review. You can follow me on Twitter at Daniel Tiger, and I hope you enjoyed the show.